don't think we can really cover innovations that impact the future of agriculture without talking about genetics. You indeed reach an optimum approach towards agronomy. And then the only way you can increase yield, which we absolutely need to do, is through genetic improvement. So the impact and the importance of plant breeding is only increasing year after year after year. Seed consultant Marcel Bruns joins the show to talk about the past, present, and future of plant breeding. One of the biggest changes over the years, it's now a team sport. The plant breeders, often it's now multiple plant breeders that take care of a specific crop, are assisted by colleagues in the plant pathogen department, in the molecular biology department, in the marketing department. New technologies that allow for more access and diversity are critical to meeting the challenges of the future. At a certain point, the pathogens have caught up and climate change has caught up with us and the varieties are no longer valuable to the farmer. So you need to continue to create the diversity with CRISPR and the other gene editing tools. We now have much more players in the field that are helping us create that valuable diversity. Plant Breeding with Dr. Marcel Bruins of Bruins Seed Consultancy on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and you and I every week get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And before we dive into today's episode on plant breeding, I'd like to take a quick moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best growing land, Calgary really does have it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and for agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. Quick teaser, that's what next week's episode is going to be about. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you are welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more. That's calgaryagbusiness.com. And thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now to today's featured conversation with Marcel Bruins. Dr. Bruins studied plant breeding at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, a word I always mispronounce, so I'm very sorry to my Dutch friends, but I am trying my best, followed by a PhD on fusarium resistance in wheat. He worked for 10 years with a vegetable seed company as manager of plant variety production, then served seven years as secretary general of the International Seed Federation. Besides being the editorial director of the European Seed Magazine, he also operates as an independent consultant, helping companies and nonprofit organizations with questions on seed, grain, trade facilitation, intellectual property, and international outreach. I came across his work from a recent series of articles published in European Seed, which he edits, as you just heard, called 20 Most Famous Plant Breeders. I really enjoyed the entire series, and we're going to talk a little bit about it towards the end of today's episode. I'll, of course, link to that series in the show notes. But beyond that, 
Marcel and I talk about what has changed uh, with plant breeding, how plant breeders balance grower demands like pest management with consumer demands like flavor and nutrition, how the field of plant breeding continues to have to adjust to big challenges like climate change and how new technologies change the game. I really enjoyed this and I hope you will too. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Marcel is talking about what the data says about how significant the contribution of genetics has been to increasing our yields over time. Researchers have looked at the impact of agronomic improvements. It can be in fertilizer and crop protection products, agronomy, machinery, harvesting, and compare that with the impact of genetic improvements. And they, one example is a UK study. They looked at all the cereals for the past, I think, 80 or 100 years. And there they saw that roughly until the mid-80s, the impact of agronomy improvements was about 50%, and the impact of genetic changes was also 50% contributing to the yield increase. But after that, mid-80s till now, the percentage of the genetic improvements was explaining much more of the yield increase, because at a certain point, you reach the optimum of agronomic practices. You cannot, for example, continue to add fertilizer because at a certain point it becomes toxic. Too much fertilizer in the soil gives a toxic soil environment. Too much crop protection products also doesn't make sense because it also would, would become toxic. So in developed countries, you indeed reach an optimum approach towards agronomy. And then the only way you can increase yield, which we absolutely need to do, is through genetic improvement. So the impact and the importance of plant breeding is only increasing year after year after year. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about policy? You know, in the past, how has policy affected, you know, the ability for plant breeders to make an impact on the industry? Have there been big milestones in that regard? Yes, absolutely. There have been big milestones, you know, until... I would say Mendel, 200 years ago, we didn't really know what we were doing as plant breeders or as mankind. And it's very topical that you're doing this specific podcast in 2022, because it is 200 years since Mendel was born. And with the arrival of Mendel and his thorough, thorough research, we finally started to realize what was going on with those plants. And he developed and described three different laws on how characters are segregating, uh, you know, smooth peas from wrinkled peas and green peas from yellow peas and so on and so forth. So finally, from that moment on, we started to make sense of what was happening when we were crossing two varieties or two parent lines. And from that moment on, we really started to make big steps forward, uh, big strides. And I think there was probably not much in the way until a few decades ago. I think plant breeders could, in a lot of freedom, develop their plant varieties and could market their plant varieties. But of course, when I say market, fairly early on in the 1920s or so, the farmers and the breeders, they realized we need a little bit of structure here. We cannot just have everybody selling 
whatever seeds to everybody. So in the 1920s, early 1920s, the sea trade was being regulated. The International Federation for the Sea Trade, FIS, was established. Uh, 1924, also the International Sea Testing Association was established, the ISTA, all to provide a little bit of structure to that whole seed breeding, seed marketing environment. But I think that massively changed with the introduction of GMOs. And then because of a lot of unfortunate public pressure, a lot more regulations were being added towards more safety, and that made the whole regulatory environment a lot more difficult. Can you talk about that? What do you mean in terms of safety and and how did it make it more difficult? Because now if you wish to market a biotech variety, it will need to go through a very thorough testing process where you test the new variety on a a range of different organisms, uh, whether it's safe. And those rules, they are established by Codex Alimentarius, which is a UN-based organization. They set the rules for the testing of biotech varieties. That's an organization with 190-something countries. They all participate. Once a year, they get together and they decide on these rules. So we can be very sure that any variety that goes through that very rigorous testing procedure is indeed very safe for consumption. And in fact, that is uh, very easily proven, I would say, by realizing that we have eaten over a trillion meals with GM products in them. There are, what, three, four hundred million consumers in the US. They eat three times a day. So that's a billion meals with many GMO ingredients in there. And we have been eating GMOs for several decades, so plus all the other countries in the world, so that that's over a trillion meals that we've been eating with GMO ingredients and zero, zero indications of any illnesses or death. So that means to me and to you know most people that GMOs are safe. So there is also a lot to be gained through awareness. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of those people had been scared by scare campaigns by certain organizations. And that is very unfortunate because that meant that we were blocking or delaying important innovations from reaching the market. We have tremendous challenges ahead of us, and we can perhaps talk about that a little bit later. And I think with all those massive challenges ahead of us, we should be using every single innovation that is at our disposal, we should be using all those innovations to make sure that we can provide enough food for all the people on this planet. Yeah, I think that's actually a good a good transition to maybe talk about some of those. One of them, you know, certainly is a changing climate. And I'm curious, you know, how can plant breeders address climate change in their programs using this technology? You know, where do you even start with a problem so big and so challenging as, as climate change? Yeah, it is indeed a massive, massive problem. And we're seeing it basically every day on the news, right? There's too much precipitation in certain areas of the world. There's not enough precipitation, severe drought in other areas of the planet. And of course, with higher, higher humidity, 
in higher temperatures, you also get a, a different pathogen pressure. Different fungi suddenly arrive in a country. Different insects, different viruses all of a sudden feel comfortable growing in Northwest Europe, whereas until now they were only seen in Southern Europe where it's warmer. But now with the increasing temperatures, they are now seen in Northern Europe into Scandinavia. So plant breeders need to do a whole lot of things. They need to, for example, put more focus on abiotic tolerance. We have biotic resistance against all the pests and diseases, and we have abiotic tolerance, as we call it, towards drought, towards salt, towards aluminum in the soil, towards heat, towards flooding. That's all abiotic stress factors. And, and plant breeders are now putting more effort than in the past into those abiotic stress factors, especially drought, of course, because we've been seeing massive periods of drought. And, and this summer, 2022, is a perfect example of that. We had incredible drought here in Europe, in most countries in Europe. If I look outside, I see very meager, small corn plants, much smaller than they should be, about half the height of what they can normally reach. So there you see the, the huge impact immediately of the changing climate. So plant breeders need to work on that. And they have been doing that for centuries. They have been crossing and they have been selecting the offspring in multiple countries. So it is not so entirely different from what they have been doing. They just need to include a few more or several more traits in the set of traits that they were already selecting for. A grass breeder normally would put his new grass varieties from Italy all the way up to Scandinavia in various trials and would look for different characteristics. And now in Italy, the breeder would then also spend more time assessing those new varieties for drought tolerance. And for example, in Scandinavia, he would look more for resistance to a certain insect that is now all of a sudden appearing. So it's, it's an extension of the work activities, basically. Yeah. And, and with that extension, what needs to be done to give plant breeders more of what they need in order to address these challenges? Yeah, that's a very good question, Tim. And I think here, gene editing uh, very much comes into place. This is, in fact, a set of new technologies, not just CRISPR, but a whole set, a whole range of different tools that have been added to the plant breeder's toolbox. Of course, CRISPR is by far the most famous, has won a Nobel Prize, very much recognizing the importance of those tools. And with those tools, we can very smart and very efficiently and very relatively cheap, we can make uh, surgical changes into plant varieties. Let's say you have a beautiful corn variety, high yield, high resistance, but doesn't have drought tolerance yet. And normally, until now, you would have to cross that very good variety with a drought tolerant variety, and then you need 10, 15 years to select a new variety that combines the high yield and the good resistance with drought tolerance. But now with gene editing, you can surgically insert 
their drought tolerance into their good variety. And you still need some years of field selection, but within four or five years, you can then arrive at a very good variety that is combining all those characteristics. So it's much faster, it's more efficient, it is cheaper, so it opens up possibilities for universities, for small and medium-sized enterprises, and so on. So it benefits all around. I think that's pretty compelling. I wonder, you know, one area I'm interested in, because I, I don't know very much about, is sort of like the plant's ability to communicate with each other and with the microbes as far as, you know, how changes in other plants or changes in microbes will, you know, stimulate the plant. Is that a big area of uh, genetic research as well? It is becoming much, much more important. It was a bit understudied, neglected in the past century, I would say, but gradually as we go along and understand much more of what is happening between plants of the same species, but also between plants of different species, you know, we, we can gradually make sense of what is going on there and what they are telling each other. For example, there are famous examples where an attack of insects on a certain plant leads to the release of chemicals warning other plants of that same species to put up a defense mechanism so that once the insects arrive at those other plants, of course, those other plants, those neighboring plants, they are prepared and are better to fend off the attackers. In the soil, of course, there is a huge biodiversity of organisms, of different species of bacteria, of fungi, nematodes, some very damaging but also a lot of beneficial organisms. And also there we don't really understand a lot yet of that root environment. What happens around the roots of our plants? What organisms, which bacteria, which microbes are beneficial and which ones not so much and under which circumstances, heat, colder, more humid or drought, when do which microbes contribute in a beneficial way to the plants? And that's being studied more and more. There's more research coming out. And all of that research eventually will also trickle into plant breeding. We will be able to make new plant varieties that can better interact with the microbes in the soil environment. Perhaps we even accompany the right microbes in a small layer around the seed, because you probably heard about seed treatment, where you add a little bit of crop protection product or a bit of fertilizer in a very thin layer around the seed. Perhaps we could add some microbes to it so that the young plant immediately has his good buddies around him in the root environment and, and is off to a much better start. Yeah, and I, I think that's exciting to think about once we better understand those interactions, if we can actually breed for more effective interactions, which obviously could lead to you know better outcomes. I think that stuff is really, really cool. I know the techniques have advanced with things like gene editing that's going on now, CRISPR, et cetera. Are the principles the same? I mean, the, the, the plant breeders, kind of the one-man hero plant breeder, are the principles still the same that they were using back then, or have the principles changed? I think the principles from what you just mentioned indeed have changed. It was in the past century, in the past two centuries, I can say, it was most of the time a one-man show. 
And we have some very famous plant breeders in the past 200 years that have made a larger than life contribution to, you know, new varieties. But that has changed. It has become much more a interdisciplinary activity where the plant breeders, often it's now multiple plant breeders that take care of a specific crop, are assisted by colleagues in the plant pathogen department, in the molecular biology department, in the marketing department. Because the varieties, they often need to go to multiple countries with different disease pressures, with different consumer wishes. So a cabbage variety or a tomato variety for Europe would be different than for Japan or for the US. And that's why you need multiple breeders doing tomato breeding in one company. Right. I've heard, you know, people say things like over time, our fresh produce has lost either flavor or nutrition or both because we've had to focus so much on pest and disease problems or sort of agronomic issues. Is that true? I mean, what's your sense of that in general? You know, have we had to focus so much on the making it, you know, more resilient to grow that we took some of the quality factors down? Now, it's true that, you know, disease resistance is a super important part of the breeding activities. It is generally calculated that around 50% of the breeders' efforts, time and efforts, are spent on disease resistance breeding. Having said that, in the I would say 50s and 60s, we did indeed see a period where there was a heavy focus on yield, where we saw tomatoes that were tomato varieties that were cranking out a lot of kilos, but taste was a bit lost. But that has been rectified already for several decades ago. When I did my university study, in fact, and that's uh, what, 40 years ago, in fact, I was selecting tomato varieties for taste. I was doing the, the taste analysis, sugar, salt, aromatic compounds. And I think that has been greatly rectified. Taste has uh, come back in a big way. And, you know, consumers appreciate that and they buy for that. So if, if it wouldn't be there, they wouldn't buy those new varieties. So it's, it's a self-correcting mechanism. Right. Well, I, one other, you know, sort of, Criticism is that the way that modern plant breeding is done, it's um, concentrating too much power and too few of hands, meaning the consolidation of the industry into very few major players that are kind of having control over the genetics that enter the food system. Do you see things like CRISPR as actually democratizing plant breeding in some way where it's more accessible for more individuals and doesn't have to be the investment of a, a major multinational corporation? Yeah, true. Absolutely true. As I said before, CRISPR is a relatively cheap uh, tool, much cheaper than transgenesis, what we were using before to, to make uh, genetic changes. And that has democratized that specific part of plant breeding. It is now possible for a much wider set of, of organizations, public sector and private sector, to start with plant breeding, to start with gene editing, to develop those new plant varieties uh, that might provide a benefit for society later on. 
and whether all those organizations continue all the way to marketing, um, that's probably not going to be the case because the university doesn't have that whole infrastructure of um, scaling, upscaling uh, the seeds, uh, selecting in the field in, mass, in, in, in many countries, and then the whole marketing uh, apparatus, they don't have that. But they are engaging in the whole creation of diversity. And that is very nice because then they could license those new varieties or those halfway varieties to, to small seed companies, to medium, large seed companies for whatever price they agree upon. So you now have much more players that can generate that diversity because that is basically at the end of the day, the core nucleus of, of plant breeding. You need to generate diversity, more diversity to select from. Because if, if you keep you know, selling the same stuff, at a certain point, the pathogens have caught up and climate change has caught up with us and the varieties are no longer valuable to the farmers. So you need to continue to create the diversity with CRISPR and the other gene editing tools. Um, we now have much more players in the field that are helping us create that valuable diversity. Very cool. Well, uh, you recently you know, wrote a series of articles about famous plant breeders. I really enjoyed reading them because just I, I like the people behind, you know, the innovations. That's just something I enjoy. And so I, I wonder from you, you know, you kind of talked about how we all stand on the shoulders of these these giants. I don't think we have time to go through all 20, but are there one or two that stand out to you as just cool stories or just uh, really impactful people that, that you had on that list? Yeah, indeed. I thought it was uh, it was good to um, you know put them in the in the spotlight, especially in this year where we have two hundred years of Mendel, and then after Mendel there came a whole bunch of uh, of plant breeders, and some of them are, are are much more famous than others. I tried to to look for famous plant breeders from different countries, not just from one or two countries. So uh, you know you will see a wide variety. Uh, some very famous uh, names, of course, Norman Borlaw and Luther Burbank and so on. And, and I think perhaps two I could highlight here. They, are, um, they deserve a bit of extra attention. And I, I mentioned these because of the Russia-Ukraine war. There are two plant breeders. The first is, uh, is Nikolai uh, Vavilov. And the other one is Volodymyr Simirenko from the Ukraine. And Vavilov is, of course, a Russian botanist. And, and uh, Simirenko is a, is a Ukraine uh, selection scientist. And both were, were very driven individuals. And they were going out collecting germplasm. And they were creating new types and, and new varieties. And they were making wonderful contributions. But then they ran into the government. And the government had a different idea. Um, and they shut down these two scientists and they were ostracized. And one was assassinated, Simrenko was assassinated, and, and Vavilov died of, of hunger, of famine in a, in a prison. And just to realize that scientists, that were, they were br both brilliant scientists, but that government at that point in time, and we're, we're talking the, the 1920s, more or less, 1920s, 1930s, uh, the government was influenced by some, I would call them fake scientists 
they were not basing themselves on facts or, or actual studies, but they were influencing the policymakers at that point. And, the, and, and from then on onwards, those two brilliant breeders, they were cast aside and they, uh, they died. So th those, those two stories for me jumped out very much because of the topical, topicalness of the U war in the Ukraine. Yeah, wow. And were they wheat breeders or? Uh... Uh, no, Vavilov is, uh, was a huge collector. Vavilov traveled all over the world. He made some major foreign expeditions to the U.S., for example, from Russia to the U.S., to Iran, to Central and South America, Mediterranean area, to Africa, Ethiopia, all in, in the 1920s. And he collected, he collected material there. He described it very thoroughly. And he was that good that he was able to make connections between all the stuff that he, he had collected to establish centers of origin. He could deduct from all the material that he had collected that in the Middle East, there is the center of origin for modern day cereals. And in the Mediterranean basin, that is the center of origin for lettuce and South America. And, and, and Central America is the center of origin for potato and so on and so forth. So he had that uh, brilliance of minds to do that. And then he went on to create new varieties with all that wonderful stuff. And, uh, and that was great. And Simirenko, the Ukraine plant breeder, he was more of an orchard guy. Um, he he um, collected a lot of fruit germplasm. He, um, he at, in around, I think, 1928, he had around uh, 40,000 hybrids of, of fruit trees and, and berries. And so he, he was also, um, you know, helping Ukraine and helping Russia at that point in selecting which are the best fruit, variety, fruit varieties to plant where. And uh, also there, his very beneficial efforts were, were cut short by, by politics. Wow. Jeez. That is a tragic story, but I, I, it also underlines the just the global importance of this work. Well, Marcel, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for the time. Anything else that you'd like to mention before I let you go? Yeah, perhaps uh, I'm, I'm a scientist. I did my PhD, and I would really like to, you know, stress that a science should be taking a bigger role in decision making. That is really, if there is one take home message that I could give your audience is that especially policymakers, especially politicians, you know, heed your science, make sure you base your decisions on peer reviewed science. I'm not seeing that enough. We've had quite a number of decisions where uh, big, important policy decisions in the field of agriculture were taken on emotion on voter fear and so on and i would like to say you know take a look at the science make sure you stay as close as possible to those peer-reviewed data well thank you so very much once again to dr marcel bruns for being on the show you can learn more about his work at brunesseedconsultancy.com which i will of course link for you in the show notes as well as the 20 most famous plant breeders series for you to enjoy as well uh, if you do get a minute i'd sure love a rating and review on apple podcasts or spotify or both we got a nice one recently from doug wolf which says great podcast on agriculture really enjoyed listening to your guest on tef 
I'm trying to eat healthier and just ordered some of the product. It was enjoyable to listen to her story about growing a different cash crop. I also enjoyed the podcast on growing food in commercial buildings. Thanks for what you do to spread the news of great new business ideas in agriculture. Hey, thanks, Doug, and all of you who've taken the time to leave us a rating and review. If you haven't yet, it doesn't take very long, and your kind words and personal recommendations really do go a long ways to helping to support this show. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.